The drug thalidomide, prescribed to pregnant women in the late 1950s to alleviate morning sickness, caused thousands of infants to be born with malformed limbs, only 40% of whom survived infancy. It was by no means the first drug to cause harm to patients, but in the dawn of the age of television, it was among the first to have those ill effects broadcast to the world. Although the drug was never approved for use in the United States, it led to the passage of the Kefauver-Harris Amendment, which required drug manufacturers to provide proof of the efficacy and safety of their drugs before approval. That sounds like a reasonable requirement with all the right intentions, but critics say it may have cost more lives than it saved. Prior to the amendment, it took an average of seven months for a drug to get approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Today, it takes anywhere from 10 to 12 years, which is far too long to help most patients with life-threatening illnesses. So what can be done to improve the model for drug testing and approval without putting patient safety in jeopardy? Today, we'll hear from Professor Arielle Stern about her case entitled Adaptive Platform Trials, The Clinical Trial of the Future, I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up, and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Ariel Stern's research focuses on the management of innovation in healthcare with an emphasis on the medical device and pharmaceutical industries. She is particularly interested in the intersection of the regulation, firm strategy, and economics of healthcare all of which I think factor into this case. Ariel, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. So I, I admit, uh, you know, I had to go back and read a couple of the sections of this case more than once, only because it gets into, there's a lot of definitions that matter. And I'm going to maybe uh, belabor that a little bit in the beginning by asking you to define some stuff as we go on so our listeners understand exactly uh, the nuances of the case. But maybe you can start just by, you know, setting up the case for us. Who's the protagonist and what's going on? Absolutely. Um, so this case is set uh, in the summer of 2017, and our protagonist is Dr. Brian Alexander, who's a radiation oncologist over at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center here in Boston. He's also an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. And Brian is in the process of launching a new type of clinical trial, an adaptive platform trial. And what's interesting about this setting is actually the study design is in really great shape. So where we come in um, is, is at a point in time where some of the leading experts in the world and the country have already had their input on the study design, which is quite innovative. Um, but the business model itself is still developing. And so that's where it makes a terrific HBS case. So I'm wondering what prompted you to write uh, this case. Do you have a, a background in medicine or an interest in medicine? Yes, yeah, so th there are a couple of answers. I, I do. I actually started off as an undergraduate studying biochemistry. So I've been interested in the life sciences for quite a while. But my, my first interest in clinical trials in particular dates back uh, to 2004 when my, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and was enrolled in a clinical trial for an experimental cancer therapy. Um, it turned out that what we would later learn is that the drug in this trial was not actually effective for the type of cancer she had. But it took us uh, at the time actually uh, between two and three years after she'd finished her course of treatment to learn mm. that that drug didn't really have uh, a long-term effect. Um, so that was quite disappointing. And at the time, uh, it, it you know really struck me that, that surely 
there must be a way to get this information more efficiently. Uh, this was before I had a PhD and before I'd, I'd thought deeply about clinical trial design. The more, the more recent, the more immediate answer is that through the, the Harvard-MIT Center for Regulatory Science that I work with closely, I've had the opportunity to, to meet and to work with Brian Alexander, our protagonist, um, and have been just broadly excited about all the great work being done on clinical trial innovation here in Boston. The other thing uh, that led to the case is, is that it dovetails really nicely with the work of the Kraft Precision Medicine Accelerator mm -hmm. here at HBS. And the, the confluence of all of those factors really meant um, that this was a great time to write a case about clinical trial innovation. That's great. So now comes uh, definition time, I guess. <laughs> so can you start, I guess, by because the case centers around uh, clinical trials for glioblastoma. Just tell us quickly what, what that is. Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, glioblastoma is a, is a malignant and fast-growing form of brain cancer. Uh, it's relatively uncommon. Um, it, it affects... Uh, about 12,000 people in the United States every year, but that's actually far less common than, than a lot of the cancers that we hear about. The typical course of treatment for patients is also unpleasant. It involves brain surgery to the extent possible, followed by a course of chemo and radiation. Despite that, uh, there are very frequent recurrences. Um, the prognosis is not good, so the five-year survival rate for folks diagnosed with glioblastoma is in the single digits. Um, so this is this is really uh, quite a quite a serious disease, and and one where there's a, a lot of public and, and individual enthusiasm for for doing better by our patients. Great. Um, so. It's a complicated landscape, but how did drugs get approved in the U.S.? Yeah, so <laughs> we, uh, how many days <laughs> in, do we have? <laughs> in five sentences or less. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, the entire process can easily take over a decade. Uh, we think about 10 to 12 years from start to finish. Drugs start off uh, in, in laboratories and universities and pharmaceutical companies in what we call the preclinical phase of research, where we're trying to understand how the drugs work uh, and if they'll work in patients before we, we start giving them to patients. In order to start giving drugs to patients, the drug sponsor, uh, which is typically a pharmaceutical company, will file what's called an investigational new drug application with the FDA in mm -hmm. the United States. And that's followed by, so if that's approved, uh, they get the green light to move ahead with clinical trials. And that's followed by what we call the clinical trial phase that involves usually three phases of clinical trials. We can you know, go into more detail if you'd like, but all told, it sounds like a long time takes and quite a lengthy a while. process. And it's not cheap, right? It's not cheap. Estimates really vary on this one. And as you can imagine, um, the costs also are likely to vary if, if you're dealing with a more severe disease where regular hospitalizations are necessary, the cost of clinical trials um, will certainly be much higher. But on average, uh, we're talking about anything from, from hundreds of millions of dollars to well over a billion dollars to, to develop a new drug. So yeah, this is yeah. serious And that, all, that gets to issues that we've heard about before where, you know, there's concern that pharmaceutical companies are only investing the research in the drugs that, that are going to pay off at the end, meaning drugs that treat uh, conditions that affect many people versus a few, like in the case of glioblastoma. Absolutely, absolutely. And we have um, in, in healthcare economics uh, a number of, of good studies that have actually shown precisely that. So without getting ahead of ourselves, I, I think that one of the concerns is that for relatively rare cancers, um, we are worried that because the potential market is small on the back end, we may not have as much research um, as, as we would otherwise see for, for much more prevalent diseases. So there's a lot of room for improvement, a lot of room for business solutions maybe, and we'll get to those in a little bit. Um, 
Can you, another definition here, can you describe a randomized control trial? Sure. So, um, you know. This is the current method. This is the current method. So the current method, as it turns out, hasn't evolved that much since it was conceptualized. So the original uh, randomized control trials, or RCTs, actually go back uh, exactly 70 years to 1948 (laughs) when, yeah, believe it or not, when we... um, we did the first uh, randomized controlled trials of streptomycin in tuberculosis patients. There's, uh, of course, been a good deal of evolution in statistical software, but more or less the design has been unchanged. And we, you know, we often uh, think about a traditional randomized controlled trial as having two arms, so a treatment and a control arm, which is something a lot of folks will will be familiar with. Now, what we do is we pre-specify the number of patients that are going to be needed to get statistically meaningful results yeah. out of this trial, and then. What we do is randomize patients into either the treatment arm where they would get some sort of experimental therapy or the control arm where they would typically get a placebo. Now, we don't, we don't use placebos in cancer trials uh, for the obvious reason that it would be pretty unethical. So in, in cancer trials, what we usually do is compare an experimental therapy to what we call the standard of care. So the, the you know, typically best available treatment for patients with that cancer. And then what we do is we, we randomize patients into each of the control arms and compare outcomes after one group has been treated and one group has either not been treated at all or been treated with the quote-unquote standard of care. Yeah. So if you're in the wrong arm, um, that's not a good thing, right? Well, so, uh, you know, in, in a, with, with hindsight's 2020, uh, if it turns out that the experimental therapy was incredibly powerful um, and incredibly successful, then the folks who were in the control arm really missed out uh, in many respects, on the opportunity to be treated with with a better therapy. Yeah. Um, you spend a lot of time in the case describing uh, the the difference between statistic, like what they what kind of statistics they look at. Can you explain that? Because it's really important, I think, when you get into the adaptive trial platforms. Absolutely. So um, I, I don't want to get too deep into our statistical appendices. No, that'll but, scare uh, away a lot of, <laughs> a lot don't of our listeners. scare away our listeners. <laughs> but uh, frequentist trials... Uh, are those that basically set everything up in advance and, in a sense, kind of let it run, let it rip. And uh, traditional randomized control trials are our frequentist trials. We do some statistical calculations up front and we say, look, if we're expecting this type of effect from this drug, this is roughly how many patients we'll need to give it to in order to observe a statistically significant difference between our treatments and control groups. Um, Bayesian trials, uh, which are the basis for adaptive platform trials, are a little bit different. What Bayesian trials do is is actually incorporate information as it accumulates. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So say patients with a certain tumor type are doing incredibly well on a given therapy, what we can actually do is incorporate that information into how we assign patients to to receive that therapy, mm-hmm. and that'll that'll work into um, the adaptive platform design. So, and then that also addresses the issue we just talked about, which is if you happen to be in the wrong arm of the study, then this gives you an opportunity to move. Yeah. So, um, so what Bayesian randomization allows us to do is is still maintain the statistical rigor that we want from trials, um, and really leads to causal inference, which is quite important. But it allows us to be smart about the the size of the sample we're using mm-hmm. um, and how we're assigning patients. Okay. So. All right, great. So now let's get to the meat of the case, which is the adaptive platform trial. Describe that in contrast to the randomized control trial. 
Absolutely. So I think actually an example is helpful yeah. uh, for this. Um, there, there are two components. So there's the adaptive component and the platform component. And both are, both are uniquely important in this trial design. Let's start with the platform since I think it's simpler. Conveniently, Brian, we have names that start with A and B. So we're going to yeah. imagine that we each have an experimental therapy. So I have experimental therapy A, you have experimental therapy B. And in the, in the traditional clinical trial world, what would happen is, is let's say experimental therapies A and B are both for small cell lung cancer. Mm-hmm. What you would do is you would go out and you would enroll your trial, and I would go out and I would enroll my trial. We'd both have a control arm of patients who are not going to get this experimental therapy, uh, either yours or mine. Um, and we would both, we'd go out and we'd hire a contract research organization to help us run the trial. We'd pick an IT provider. Mm. We'd find patients and do all of that. And uh, let's just say for simplicity that we both determine that we need 80 patients to get statistical significance in our trials. So you're going to have 80 patients. I'm going to have 80 patients. Um, you'll put 40 of those patients on your experimental therapy. 40 will be on the control. I'll do exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So in that world... In order for you to get an answer about whether or not your drug works in these lung cancer patients and for me to get an answer, we'll need a total of 160 patients. What the platform trial does is just builds on this insight that if we can get it together in advance to coordinate on a lot of aspects of the trial infrastructure, we can actually share a control arm. So if we jointly choose a contract research organization that's going to go out and help us recruit patients, and if Mm -hmm. we jointly choose an IT provider and IT systems, we can silo off our individual information about the actual experimental therapies we're studying and share a control group of patients. So now, without doing anything else, we have just gone from needing 160 patients in total in order for us both to get statistical significance to needing 120 patients. So the sample size has decreased. We're seeing efficiencies, yeah. uh, especially in, in uncommon cancers. It's often hard to go out and actually find these patients. So 40% of cancer trials never fully enroll. I was going to ask that because, you know, you hear often that people who are desperate, you know, they're, they know other treatments worked and they're, they're looking for experimental treatments. Is- yes, yes, absolutely. And, and um, you know, so that's, that's uh, certainly all lurking in the background. Um, and so what we want to do is, is when we have patients to use in clinical trials, we want to use them efficiently. And in this way, we, um, we have the exact same number. Both you and I have the same number of patients receiving the experimental therapy. So we have just as many patients who could potentially benefit from new drugs, but now fewer patients who are just in the control group. Yeah. So that's already more efficient. Then we can layer on top of, of that setup uh, what we call Bayesian adaptive randomization. Um, that's a mouthful, but what that means is that we're actually using Bayesian statistics that have been pre-specified for this trial to figure out how to efficiently assign patients to different arms of the trial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, go back to my example from before. Um, we have patients with a certain tumor type, and we learn that they are doing incredibly well on your therapy, on therapy B, mm-hmm. based on interim analysis. So about once a month, we're going to actually look at the data and see how patients are progressing. We say, wow, patients of this type are doing really well in Brian's therapy. What we can do is, is use our pre-specified algorithm to now preferentially assign that type of patient to your arm of the trial. Uh-huh. Um, and patients love this. So now patients, as the trial progresses, Patients are not only being used efficiently because of the shared control arm component of the trial design, but we've also got the patients that are coming in being preferentially assigned 
to the treatment arm of the trial they're most likely to benefit from. Okay. So we've got efficiencies. We've got better patient outcomes. Those are two great things. What are some of the other benefits that emerge from using the adaptive yeah. So, um, you know, thinking back to, to my mother's experience, the other thing we get is we get information faster on what won't work. Um, and this is quite important. And it's it's something that I think we don't talk about enough. But what Bayesian adaptive platform trials allow us to do um, is we talk about trial sort of arm stopping in graduation. Mm-hmm. Graduation means that we learn very quickly that a trial is very effective and we can move that drug on to the next phase Stopping means that we also learn efficiently if a particular therapy isn't going to work for a group of patients. And and surely um, it's desirable to stop uh, researching that drug in that group of patients if we have a very good statistical signal that it's unlikely to help them. This episode of Cold Call is brought to you by Indeed. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever. And that means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost the visibility of your job post at Indeed.com slash cold call. That's Indeed.com slash cold call. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. So let's dig into some of the business challenges, because I was really fascinated reading about just how many people are involved in this and some of the really difficult business uh, challenges that they faced in trying to get the trial up and running. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I think a better question is sort of who wasn't involved in yeah. this. If uh, if you read between the lines in the case, what you'll actually see uh, is that, you know, in total, putting together just this one trial uh, involved over 130 oncologists, pathologists, radiologists, and statisticians. Um, this was a massively collaborative effort. It, it you know, already has been in the trials only in the launch phase right now. Um, we had a number of, um, of local folks at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center, as well as a number of individuals who are statistical consultants. And some real entrepreneurial thinking about how you fund something like this. We talked about the money before. This real money that's required to do it. And they came up with some very interesting ways for how to fund it. Um, one of the benefits of an adaptive platform trial is we set up the infrastructure once and then we can continue to add experimental therapies to the trial. Um, but that's costly because we're building infrastructure for something that um, that hopefully will will last for, for many years, if not decades, uh, until we have good treatments for glioblastoma. What that means is that the upfront costs are massive. Yeah. We have a lot of traditional financing options, so looking at things like asking uh, pharmaceutical companies who typically fund clinical research anyhow to pay for individual arms of the trial. But the upfront costs are, are still um, still quite an obstacle. And, you know, in this case, the folks running the trial decided to, uh, to start a foundation. So the foundation is called the Global Coalition for Adaptive Research. Mm-hmm. And through this foundation, they were able to start negotiating relationships with contract research organizations um, and only then start to approach pharmaceutical companies and, and other uh, cancer research groups to, to think about how they might want to be involved financially. Yeah. I was particularly interested in the notion of them becoming a healthcare provider. That, to me, was really innovative. You know, while there's this really, uh, this this daunting upfront challenge in financing, there are a number of new opportunities created here, of yeah. course, as well. Um, one of the insights uh, that, that, that Brian Alexander has had in thinking about this 
is, you know, why not provide all of the health care for glioblastoma patients? You know, we've got folks coming in anyhow. They're going to be seeing um, experts in both medical and radiation oncology anyhow. Um, why not just outsource all of the care for those patients to one of these trial sites and, and try to capture um, some of the value for, for patients and providers in that way? So that was one idea. The, the cost of, of doing a trial in glioblastoma for other experimental cancer therapies will go down once this platform exists. Yeah. You could also get really creative, and this, you know, this is HBS after all, yeah. with thinking about uh, other things that we might do. You know, Just one example is that there are a lot of small biotechnology companies that have maybe only one or two experimental cancer drugs. Um, and they've got the resources from their funders, typically venture capitalists, to run maybe only clinical trials in, in one type of cancer. Now, because we have this foundation behind this research platform, the foundation can approach some of these small biotech companies and say, hey, look, we, we think your drug might be interesting to study in glioblastoma. Why don't you give it to us? We'll pay for that arm of the trial. We'll study your drug. And if it turns out this drug is effective, um, we'll have some sort of royalty sharing agreement on the yeah. back end. So now suddenly the foundation is able to take on some of the risk and then also uh, also have a piece of the action if it turns out that these drugs are effective. Yeah. Have you discussed this in class? I have. We've actually had a, a couple of events. We were able to discuss this uh, at Boston's Hub Week event wow. this fall, which was terrific. And then um, I also discussed this with a group of HBS healthcare alumni a couple months ago. They loved it. It's uh, you know, it's interesting. The folks who've worked in pharma, they have two reactions very rapidly. The first reaction is wow, this makes so much sense. And the second reaction that follows predictably immediately on the heels of that is, I don't know if these companies will ever go for this. I don't, you know, people who've, who've seen what clinical research management looks like, they then right away say, oh, this is going to really freak people out. This is so different than how we've been doing clinical research up until now. And I think they're right, but I think that we're all going to be positively surprised. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. You can find the Adaptive Platform Trials case in the HBS case collection at hbr.org. If you enjoyed this episode of Cold Call, please subscribe on iTunes for more cases like this one. And while you're there, please write a review. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call.